Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. And I'm back on the College Football Survivor Show. Shahan off this week. So that means three great guests to help me get through this podcast, which I think is going to be interesting. And it's about a little bit of an issue. It's about the death of the weak division in the college football playoff era. And we are going to focus on the Big Ten West to talk about that. We're going to have three guests. We have Colton Bartholomew to talk about Wisconsin football from the Wisconsin State Journal. Then we're going to have Zach Carpenter from Inside Nebraska and the Rivals Network to talk about Nebraska football. Then we're going to have John Steppy from the Cedar Rapids Gazette to talk about Iowa football. Those, I think, should be the three best programs in what is still the Big Ten West as of right now. Nebraska hasn't been that, but they probably should be. In the 12-year history of the Big Ten, Wisconsin has made six Big Ten championship games. That's tied for the most with Ohio State. Wisconsin football has been pretty darn good. And then Iowa has made two Big Ten championship games uh, most recently in, in 2021. So what we're talking about is we're getting away from that. So as we stand right now, the Big 12 hasn't had divisions since 2010. So never in the playoff era has the Big 12 had divisions. They brought the Big 10, the Big 12 championship game back in 2017, but they went with the top two seeds, no divisions. Okay. Pac-12 did away with divisions last year. Last year, for the first time, played the best two teams in the conference championship game. The ACC doing away with it this season. So in 2023, the ACC championship game no longer Coastal and Atlantic will just be the two best teams. The SEC still has divisions for this year. But the thing that happened in the SEC is it's there's not a weak division anymore because Georgia has risen up. And the Big Ten is still going to have this this year. And this is what I want to talk about. What's going to change for those teams who in those weaker divisions in these major conferences had opportunities because there has been a clear divide in every conference. In the SEC, for instance, the SEC West with Alabama has been the dominant program in the conference championship games. They've been the dominant division. So in the 31 SEC championship games, the West has won 18 and the East has won 13. However, since Nick Saban got it going, so we'll give Nick Saban a pass in year one in 2007. Since 2008, it's 11 to 3, SEC West over SEC East. And that's counting Georgia rising up right now as the best team in college football out of the SEC East. But historically, once Saban got going, and in the playoff era then, in the nine years of the playoffs so far, the SEC West has been dominant over the SEC East. As a result, in the playoff era, the nine years of the playoff, the SEC West has gotten eight teams into the playoff, and the SEC East has gotten three teams into the playoff. So there's a divide there. The ACC, not even close. The ACC with Clemson and Florida State, both in the Atlantic Division, in the 17 years of the ACC, 12 to 5, the Atlantic over the Coastal in conference championship game victories. That's seven conference titles for Clemson, four for Florida State, one for Wake Forest. On the other side, the Coastal, that's supposed to be Virginia Tech and Miami, and they haven't held up their end of the bargain. Virginia Tech, three titles, Georgia Tech, one, and Pitt, one. 
So that has been a huge divide. As a result, the ACC Atlantic, seven playoff appearances. The ACC Coastal, none. No team from the ACC Coastal has ever made the playoff, and now they never will because the ACC got rid of divisions. The Pac-12 used to be north and south. They got rid of it last year. Oddly, right, USC is supposed to be the power in the Pac-12, but they never have been in the playoff era. As a result, the Pac-12 North has gotten two teams in to the playoff in history, and the Pac-12 South never got anybody in. And that era is now done. And as a result, in the Pac-12, all-time 9-3 to in Pac-12 conference championship games while it was North and South. That was four titles by Oregon, three by Stanford, two by Washington. That's the nine for the North. And the South was two by Utah, one by USC. So it was nine to three. Again, imbalance. Okay, the Big 12 never had it. The most unbalanced was the Big 10. The Big 10 has had 12 years of a conference championship game. For three years, they dorked around with legends and leaders, which wasn't a bad idea to not do it geographically. The names annoyed everybody. But then they shifted to East and West. It's 9-0. And never has the Big 10 West had a playoff team. They've never had a team win the Big 10 championship. And they've never had a playoff team. So that breakdown is obviously led by Ohio State coming out of the Big Ten East. And then Michigan has made two and Penn State made one. So overall, the nine titles in the East, five Ohio State, two Michigan, one Michigan State, one Penn State. None for the West. The nine title games since the Big Ten went East-West, 326 to 145 total score. That's an average score of 36 to 16. Got off to a bad start when the first one of East-West was 59 nothing. Ohio State over Wisconsin. Six of the nine games, though, were a one-score game in the fourth quarter. So those games were actually competitive, but the Big Ten West could never get over the top. So the result is, in the playoff era, the Big Ten West, Wisconsin, Iowa, Nebraska, Illinois, Purdue, Minnesota, Northwestern, shut out of the playoff. Iowa almost made it to one year when Iowa and Michigan State in 2015 was basically a play-in game. They were four and five. Michigan State won in the last seconds. Michigan State gets in. Big Ten West, no playoff appearances. Pac-12 South, no playoff appearances. ACC Coastal, no playoff appearances. And Georgia, the only team from the SEC East who's done anything. Now, Florida in the in the pre-playoff era was a power in the SEC East, and that's pre-Saban. That's why it's 18-13. That's why it's as close as it is all time in the SEC. But again, it's 11-3 since Saban got rolling west over the east. So... What we want to talk about here is in a playoff world, what now happens for these teams who no longer have this divisional goal where you say, okay, well, we don't have to be Ohio State. We don't have to be Alabama. We don't have to be Clemson or Florida State, but we can win our division and then we can take our shot, hope for an upset in a conference championship game. It feels a little weird for like USC to say, we don't have to be Stanford. We don't have to be Oregon or Washington. It just tells you how weird it's been that USC has fallen off like it has before Lincoln Riley. And that world is going to be gone. So we want to look at these three teams right now, Wisconsin, Nebraska, and Iowa. But we want to think about what their future is. Because for instance, in the Big Ten, I think the Big Ten and the 12-team playoff world that were start in 2024 should plan on having three playoff teams more often than not. So that means one of those playoff teams is not going to be in the Big Ten championship game. 
So you don't have to make the Big Ten championship game, but it's going to be a weird kind of bit of a goal to try to be like the 10th or 11th best team in college football and say, okay, well, maybe USC and Michigan or Ohio State and USC or Penn State and Ohio State or whatever are going to go play in a Big Ten championship game because I think the shorthand, I, I don't think it's unfair, shorthand of starting in 2024, who you expect the four best teams of the Big Ten to be? Michigan, Ohio State, USC, and then Penn State probably fourth. Those three is the top three, Penn State fourth. And then you get into can Wisconsin work its way in there, Michigan State as its peak. I don't know if that's where Michigan State is going to be. But those traditional West teams just aren't at that level. So what's their new reality? Do you have to adjust your perception as fans of that team? Do you have to adjust your goals? Do you have to lower your goals? Because that West title, that's a nice banner, Big Ten West champs. Nice to hang. It's going to be hard to hang a banner. It's going to be hard to get to a Big Ten championship game, but it doesn't mean you can't get in the playoff. But we are doing away with this world of unbalanced divisions because everyone's going to get a, go divisionless. We don't know exactly what the SEC is going to do, but the rise of Georgia has kind of made this less relevant right now because it's like, okay, well, one side has Georgia and one side has Alabama. Go at it. So even if you bring – when you bring in Texas and Oklahoma, you don't know what that's going to look like exactly. But as long as you have Bama on one side and Georgia on the other, you're going to have some balance there. But the Big 12, it's been gone forever. The ACC, the Pac-12, it's going to be gone. The Big 10, this is the last year of it, and this is the reality. So this is a playoff show. Why are we talking about Wisconsin and Nebraska and Iowa? And it's like, well, maybe we won't be talking about them much more. I, I don't know. Will they be part? of a 12-team conversation? I don't know. But we have to acknowledge what is happening right now for those programs. So we also want to acknowledge that that division, if it was going to stay a division in the Big Ten West, would be in flux. Because the Iowa situation with Kirk Ferentz, keeping his kid Brian Ferentz, what's happening with that program is at the end of a, the coming end of an era at Iowa, maybe. That's going to mean that program's in flux. And then meanwhile, Wisconsin has a new head coach in Luke Fickle. And Nebraska has a new head coach in Matt Rule. So there are new beginnings for those two programs right now that are trying. Why do they change coaches? Because they want to be that. I don't think you could tell anybody at Wisconsin, Nebraska right now and say, oh, don't even think about the playoff ever again. I don't. That's not what those fan bases want to hear. So where are they? Where are Nebraska and Wisconsin as they begin their new futures? And where is Iowa as it winds down? What has been certainly a successful Kirk Ferentz era, but feels like it's having a very bumpy end. That's what this podcast is about. It's about the big, why are you doing a whole Big Ten West podcast? Listen, man, we're, we're trying to, the sport's changing. This is one of the ways in which it's changing. So trying to view this lens of the death of the weak division through the eyes of Wisconsin, Nebraska, and Iowa. That's what we're doing on this version of the College Football Survivor Show. We've wrapped up a lot of spring football. We're going to do that on the other show. This week, we'll have some other teams wrapping up spring football. Everybody's done now. Some teams had their last spring games this past Saturday. So we have some final ones to wrap up. But first, we're going to start off with Wisconsin. Then we'll slide right into Nebraska. Then we'll slide right into Iowa. So right now, welcome Colton Bartholomew. Talking about the Wisconsin Badgers on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Joined now by Colton Bartholomew, Wisconsin writer for the Wisconsin State Journal. Colton, thank you for joining us here. Fascinated by this merging of what Wisconsin has been offensively so successfully 
with the historic run game and running backs of Wisconsin and this new era under Luke Fickle, uh, Fickle bringing in Phil Longo as the offensive coordinator and Tanner Mordecai as a, a veteran college quarterback. What did you see this spring in the merging of the historic Wisconsin offense and maybe this new version of the Wisconsin offense? Yeah, I mean, what I saw was a lot of updates that I feel like that needed to happen if Wisconsin was going to try to continue to be competitive because what we've seen in the last few years is that, you know, when their quarterback played dips and Grammar struggled like he did, it didn't matter how good the offensive line could be or how good Braylon Allen could look. Like, you're just running in the eight, nine-man boxes, and it's just the math just didn't work anymore. So I think what you've seen with these spread formations with, um, you know, the different looks that Phil Longo brought in, and then more importantly, the RPO elements and pretty much every run having either uh, a read option element with the quarterback and RPO behind it with, to try to put the linebackers in conflict, basically just make it so that, you know, you can key in on the run all you want, but then there's going to be some, some options off of it that just weren't there in Wisconsin's offense beforehand. So I think that, and then the amount of space and speed that they're going to try to play with, I mean, it's a, a staple of the air raid and what Phil Longo has been running for a long time in college football, but just challenging the defense horizontally and vertically. And we saw that all spring uh, with the up-tempo offense, challenging, you know, endurance-wise that way as well. So I think when you blend what they have offensive line running back-wise uh, with a lot more space in the box, it's got potential to be really good. They just need the quarterback to play to what we've seen, the better versions of him uh, and kind of eliminate some of the worst versions of him that we saw in spring practice at times. What did you see from Tanner Mordecai, a guy who, who started his career at Oklahoma, has been through SMU, sixth year now as a college football player, was a pretty big get in the transfer portal. What, what's the upside versus what you saw, you know, sort of on a, on a regular basis through 15 practices in the spring? Yeah, so I, the last week or second, me, the second to last week of spring was his, his worst one, which was kind of weird because it seemed like he, he was really on a roll first three, four weeks of the spring practices. Then they had a couple of uh, a stretch of practices that he just wasn't as accurate and wasn't as, uh, you know, sharp with his reads and where he was looking. So I think the, the upside for a guy like Mordecai is he's never played with an offensive line in a running game this good and this established. So I think the fact that he's going to have a defense not looking at him as the kind of number one option every play is going to be a lot different for him when he gets to the fall. So I think that's going to help him a lot. And you see his decision-making, his decisiveness with the RPO game and just the, the quick hitches and hooks over the middle of the field that uh, are really a staple of what Longo's trying to do on offense because with the amount of space it creates, you know, get the ball in a receiver's hands, hope for a catch and run, and make a big play happen that way. It doesn't have to all be on Mordecai. Like I felt like at times uh, SMU was asking him to kind of carry what they were doing offensively. So I think those are kind of the upside for him. And then when he struggled later on in the spring, it was really the times where I think he was just trying to be a little bit too aggressive, throwing the ball downfield and maybe the guy was covered and just trying to give his receiver a 50-50 ball. Lost a few of those that turned into interceptions. And then just had a couple of uh, Aaron throws, especially in the spring game that I know people saw on BTN and everything. Uh, A wild weather day in Madison, of course, with some rain, some snow during the spring game spring in quotation marks there but uh um i think that's the stuff that you eliminate from the his, his game and with some better decision making at that point i mean there there's a 
a good chance this is a, this is what the fans are talking about now. But this could be a, a Russell Wilson situation where he comes in for a year and kind of lights it on fire. Wisconsin's offensive line. We know what that traditionally means. How good do you think that offensive line should be this year? What'd you see from it this spring? Yeah, I think they should take take a step up because I think what they've had an issue with the last few years is they had like, you know, two or three guys that are at a good level and then another two or three guys that are, you know, trying to take that step up and just weren't able to quite make it. So when you look at, you've got a guy like Jack Nelson, who's really kind of the anchor at left tackle, just classic Wisconsin left tackle where he plays with aggressiveness. He's going to be a second year at tackle after starting his redshirt freshman year at guard. So I think he's got everything you need to be, you know, kind of that prototypical Wisconsin left tackle. And he's really adapted well to, you know, the two-point stance for tackles in this new offense and then just some of the changes that happens there playing in more space on the edge. So that's a guy to kind of look out for. They've got to replace Joe Tittman, who went in the second round uh, over the weekend in the draft. So um, that's kind of an issue. They brought in Jake Renfro, a transfer from Cincinnati, who worked with Fickle and a lot of this coaching staff there. So that should be, you know, kind of a plug-and-play replacement there. But the thing that's interesting to me is that both of their guard spots are kind of up in the air, but they have three or four guys, at least, I would say, at both spots that could reasonably be expected to start on a Saturday right now. So I think there's going to be some healthy competition in the fall. And I think in the last few years, we've seen this offensive line maybe take a little bit of a step back, but with this new system and with it being a little bit easier to play with more space and create some more running lanes, I think this is going to be uh, an improvement from what we've seen the last few years from Wisconsin's offensive line. Braylon Allen's one of my favorite backs in college football average 6.8 yards per carry as a freshman in 2021 it's like a 17 year old freshman right like ridiculous year in 2021 then only 5.4 yards per carry last year what will life be like for Braylon Allen in this offense that's going to throw it more you talked about the RPO part of it has it what kind of adjustment has it been for him and and what could the upside be or the or the the challenges for Braylon Allen in year three as a Badger running back? Yeah, I think I'll start with the challenge first. I think the challenge for him is going to be, you know, he's not going to get, you know, 30 touches a game more than likely, you know, because he's got a guy like Ches Maluzzi that's going to be spelling him uh, here and there in the backfield and then with the RPO and the other things that are part of this offense, the larger passing kind of menu that it's going to have. Um, I think that all those are maybe going to decrease a little bit, just the touches he gets per game. Uh, so I think he's just got to mentally get himself prepared. Like it's not going to be, you know, as often he's touching the ball, but I think we've seen it in the spring game. We saw it throughout practices. I mean, if a defense wants to load up against Braylon Allen like they've been able to the last two years and really kind of slow him down, especially later on in the Big Ten seasons, like if that happens again, Wisconsin can actually answer it now. And I think that they really struggled to answer it in the last couple of years. So I think the upside is the offense is going to be more successful, so it could create some more scoring opportunities for Allen. But then just with the space that it creates, the running lanes have been wide open at times. Like, And I think just stylistically – the running back at Wisconsin has to read a whole lot in the old system. And, you know, it's a lot about patience and, you know, reading where the blocks are developing and then hitting the hole fast. I think in this system, it's basically there's the hole, go hit it. And it allows a guy like Allen, who's fast when he gets going, but maybe takes a little bit longer than some other, you know, elite backs. The fact that he just gets to go straight ahead quite often in this offense, I think is going to help him a lot just 
hitting the line with steam and, and making himself even tougher to tackle than he already is. Colton, one of the things I like about your coverage of, of Wisconsin football is you seem really smart about the X and O's part of the game. When you think about this marriage with with what Wisconsin is going to try to do offensively in this new era, what, what do you think the chances are of you get sort of the best of both worlds, that you get a really effective run game with this new style of passing attack that we haven't seen at Wisconsin before versus what do you think the chances are that it's not a good marriage and it's clunky offensively this year. Which more is more likely? It's a great question because I think the biggest concern is for this to work long term, you have to continue getting good quarterbacks and getting wide receiver talent that Wisconsin hasn't had before. So obviously this coaching staff went out in the transfer portal and said, let's address both of those, you know, right away. They got Mordecai, like we've talked about, who's a sixth year senior. This is gonna be his last year in college. And they got two redshirt freshmen that are really high high talent guys, four stars out of high school um, that both looked like, got, looked like they've got a lot of potential. So they might be set up there for a while to sustain this. And then they brought in, you know, CJ Williams, who was a USC transfer, who's been kind of a highlight machine in practice. Bryson Green out of Oklahoma State, he's been injured, hasn't been able to do spring practices, but a guy that's been productive in college already. So they, you feel good about that. And then they feel pretty good about the receivers they already had here that were getting kind of limited opportunities with the, the previous offense. So my big question is, how do you sustain it? How do you continue getting receiver talent to come to Madison? Because that's it's just been a tough draw the last few years. or no, Not last few years, a long time. It's been a tough kind of... Uh, proposition to get receiver talent into Wisconsin. But I think this offense should be a little bit more exciting to watch and should be a little bit easier to sell to those recruits. But when you look at this season specifically, I think the energy that Fickle and his staff brings and what they're doing stylistically and the talent they have right now, I think you've got a larger chance of having it all work and the schedule helps. I think they, outside of playing Ohio State, they've got an easier draw. Uh, with some of their crossover games. So I think that's going to help too. But I think it's got a better chance of succeeding and, and all kind of fitting this year. And then the question is, how do you do it again without a Braylon Allen? Because I think this is going to be his last year in college. And, you know, can the, the next crop of quarterbacks come in and be as poised and, and as good as Mordecai looks like he can be? So I think the bigger question is sustaining, but I think this year they'll be pretty set. And I think it's going to be a pretty good season at Madison. Luke Fickle is a defensive coach. Wisconsin historically has a good defense, 19th in the Football Outsiders defensive rankings last year, second the year before that. What you saw this spring, Colton, should this be a very good defense again for Wisconsin, or are there some challenges there? I think I think it will be good, very good. We'll see. The, the cornerback unit is very thin. They're, they've been attacking this second transfer portal window pretty hard trying to find – uh, some more experience and some better depth to come in at the cornerback spot. Uh, they had three outgoing transfers, probably guys that weren't going to play, but just, again, uh, affects your depth and guys that have been in the program already a little bit. So I think that's a, the biggest concern on defense right now. When I watch practice, I don't think they have a true nose guard. You know, they lost Keanu Benton, who was a second-round pick over the weekend as well. Uh, that's going to be a tough guy to replace anyway, and I don't think they were expecting anybody to – come in and be as productive as he was but I think I don't I I don't think from watching that they got what they wanted to out of the nose guards that they've been playing already so 
I think the big question there is, can you move a defensive end like Isaiah Mullins, who's an Ohio product, um, a big dude who's played a ton of games for Wisconsin and back for his last season to college. Can he move inside and play nose uh, in the times that they have a three down lineman set? Or do you just kind of lean more on the nickel and sub packages and go with two down linemen and uh, rely on your linebackers? I think that's going to be a big question for this defense. But stylistically, what Fickle and uh, Mike Tressel are doing, just with the, the variation of the front and just kind of like the crazy looks that they'll present an offensive line, um, the way I keep describing it is that Jim Leonard liked to keep his two four five looking the same pre-snap and then confuse offenses once the snap happened with different blitzers or guys dropping off. This defense is more like, let's confuse them before the snap even happens, and then we'll send guys from all different areas. So it's definitely a change of pace in terms of how it looks and how Wisconsin's going to run their defense, but I think that they've got the talent to be pretty effective right away. So, Colton, this last... 10 months for Wisconsin football fans. You go from firing a guy in Paul Christ, who's a former Badger player, had a lot of success at Wisconsin as an assistant then as a head coach. Do you think Jim, Jim Leonard's the interim coach? He's another Badger legend, a great defensive coordinator. People think, okay, he's going to get the head coaching job. He doesn't. And then you bring in Luke Fickle as an outsider. What was, what's it been like for the fan base? And are they all in? on Luke Fickle and the new staff at this point, or are they really going to wait and see here when you flush out two guys that Wisconsin fans were very, very familiar with, even if the last couple of years of Paul Christ weren't up to the Wisconsin standard? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, I, I think you can't move on from a Christ and especially a Leonard without being able to then hire a guy like Luke Fickle, because I think that was a sentiment of a lot of people you know, in late November when the move actually happened was like, well, who are we going to get instead of Jim Leonard? Luke Fickle wasn't on anybody's radar. They played that so close to the vest, like him turning down Notre Dame and, you know, other places in the last three, four years of his uh, stint at Cincinnati. The, it just didn't even seem like possible to a lot of people that Fickle would be interested in Wisconsin. So I think the fact that it, it was a guy that's already established himself and, you know, took a, a group of five team to the playoff it's hard to deny you know, his bona fides and his you know ability to be a successful head coach. So I think I would say about ninety to ninety five percent buy in. I, I know there are still some diehards that you know Jim Leonard being a program legend and one of the best players to ever play here. Uh, there, there's still some hurt feelings there a little bit, but I think there's a lot of excitement for what this coaching staff brings. And really, the way that Fickle came in, having the experience at Ohio State of being passed over through an interim position. Uh, back in 2011, you know, he's been through it all before. He knew all the right things to say and the respect to give to the, the coaches that were here and the traditions and the, the culture of the program already. I think that's one thing that he's done really well to maybe win over some fans that, that were a little bit hesitant because just the way that he immediately appreciated what Wisconsin was and where maybe some of the deficiencies were that he could immediately inject some life. Like I think he just did everything you can right in the first six to eight months of the job. And he says it all the time. Like they're still in the honeymoon phase. All that's going to matter is if they can win some games in the fall. But I think when you talk about the energy that they've brought and injected some life into the recruiting and outreach and social media, things of that nature that uh, maybe had slipped a little bit under the past regime, like they're in a better place right now than they were a few months ago. So I think that's helped a lot uh, getting fans to be won over and uh, 
We'll see what happens in the fall if they can win some games and keep that going. But right now they're in a better spot. Colton, we know the, the history of Wisconsin football between 2009 and 2019, eight out of 11 years with double figure wins has been the best program in the Big Ten West. But the last three years did not finish in the top 25. It's why Paul Christ lost his job. What can Wisconsin football get back to? Colton, and this is a program that has been in Big Ten championship games, have gone to Big Ten championship games with playoff aspirations, went there undefeated one year in the top four. Can Wisconsin football get back to the peak of what it was, you know, in the best of the Brett Bielema era and the best of the Paul Christ era? Is that right there for Luke Fickle and the staff? I would say it's possible. I'm not going to sit here and predict it just because I think the Big Ten as a whole has gotten better from then. I mean, obviously, Ohio State and Michigan are still right there at the top. But you look at what uh, Penn State's doing recruiting-wise and how they're looking on the field. Like, they're they're not going to be an, an easy out for anybody. You know, Wisconsin's lost to Minnesota the last two years. I know that burns Wisconsin fans very deeply. But, you know, they, they've got to be able to uh, kind of reestablish themselves on this side and a team that, you know, whatever the schedule looks like in the future, like they're going to continue playing Minnesota. They know that. So I don't know if they can ever get back to, you know, rattling off Big Ten championships or, you know, kind of at that height. But I think they'll be back in the mix of, you know, West winner or whatever it looks like in the future. But like in Indianapolis, pretty frequently playing for these games because, you know, it was that 2019 season where they played really well in the first half against Ohio State then ended up losing that game. That was really kind of the last highlight of the Chris era. So I think they could get back to that level. Getting above that, I think it's going to take a little bit more than I've seen already. Like It's going to take some bigger recruiting wins than we've seen so far to, to get to that point. But I wouldn't rule it out. I just don't think it's going to be a quick process. Colton, last two questions. I'll let you out of here with this. This new reality for Wisconsin in a world where we're most likely not going to have divisions in the Big Ten starting in 2024 – there has been this goal for teams in the Big Ten West of, hey, you know, you beat the teams out here. You have a path to Indianapolis. You, you play a great game there. You have a chance to get in the playoff. In a world where you might have to beat, you know, finish ahead of two of the three of Ohio State, Michigan, and USC to get to Indy, what changes that world? What changes in that world for Wisconsin? Will it be tough for the program, tough for fans? Do you adjust expectations? Do you not adjust expectations? And and what does it mean for Wisconsin being a team that should, could, be in the mix in the 12 team playoff world. Yeah, I think that's probably where the the shift happens, right? It's not going to be just the you know, get to Indianapolis and then see what happens. I think it's make sure you're in a position regardless if you're in in, in Indy or not or, you know, competing for the Big 10 championship, make sure that you're in a position that you're right there for the college football playoff when it expands. So, I think it's going to be a shifting um Shifting the expectation, like I know Fickle always talks about winning championships, starting with the Big Ten, winning a Big Ten championship. Some Wisconsin hasn't done in, you know, what 2012 was the last one. So I, I don't know. I, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a shift of, okay, Wisconsin or Ohio State, Michigan are, are still a tier above us right now. Like there, there's not a a clear path for us to get to that point yet. We'll see what Fickle does and if he's able to establish that path. But I think that the mentality is going to be make sure you're winning 10, 11 games if you can. If you do lose, make sure it's to only the that top tier, the Ohio State's, Michigan's, maybe Penn State, so that when you get to the end of the season, there's a clear roadmap to that 12-team playoff. Because I think 
that's going to end up becoming the the crown of having the chance at the national championship, even if you maybe don't have the chance at the Big Ten championship when the season starts. All right, and last thing, this season, this last year of the four-team playoff, we saw what Sonny Dykes and TCU did last year, first year for Sonny Dykes at a program like that. They won a bunch of close games. They played tough. They got a little bit lucky, but they were also really good right away. 7-0 and for Wisconsin into the Ohio State game in Madison is not impossible when you look at the schedule. That would include wins over Washington State and Illinois and Iowa. You're not taking any of those teams for granted. But is there a is there a real, maybe sneaky upside of the TCU model that Wisconsin could backdoor a little bit here if they play their cards exactly right? Yeah, I think the biggest question is going to be like, can they can they avoid an injury? Because I I think you just look at the starting unit on both sides of the ball. That's a team that can play with just about anybody. Like I don't think they're in that top top tier of college football yet, but I think that's a team that would be competitive in just about every game they play. I just don't think they have much room for error and injury on either side of the ball, and that's really what I think in college football separates that top top tier and everybody else is that you know those top teams can lose somebody and still be able to plug and play and replace them i don't think wisconsin's there yet depth wise so I, i'm with you i think 7-0 going into the ohio state game in madison is possible they're gonna need some breaks to go their way and like i said they're gonna have to stay healthy i just i just don't see it happening quite to the point this season where they're you know having a miracle run like you mentioned with tcu Unless something happens here in the summer transfer season where they really solidify some of these spots, like I mentioned before, like corner and, you know, other places. But I think this is going to be a good season in Madison and a a good, like, get back on the right direction and on the upslope. I just don't think it's going to be, you know, ending in uh, college football playoff like we're talking about. He's Colton Bartholomew. You can follow his coverage at the Wisconsin State Journal at Madison.com really smart about the Badgers and and just a really interesting program right now. So Colton, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to join us here on the College Football Survivor Show. Yeah, thanks, Doug. Joined now by Zach Carpenter, the publisher and owner of Inside Nebraska in the rival system of great college football coverage. Know Zach from his days covering Ohio State. Zach, thanks for joining us here on the College Football Survivor Show. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, Doug. We, uh, I wouldn't say we go way back, but we go semi-medium back a few years on the Ohio State beat together. And uh, it's good to see your face. Good to hear your voice. And uh, we, I mean, reputation as one of the better question askers on the Ohio State beat. So now I'm, I'm getting the, I'm on the other end of that. I'm the one getting asked questions by Doug Lamarice. Or is it Les Marys? How do you pronounce it? He's called me. He's called me the little Dougie. That's all fine. <laughs> little Dougie um, Fresh. That's right. The uh, So, yeah, not very often that people say it's good to see my face. So, that Zach, let's talk about Nebraska. This is a playoff show. College Football Survivor Show is a playoff show, and people might say, why are we talking about Nebraska? Nebraska, by the way, I looked this up. College uh, Football Playoff, great website about this. Eight appearances in the playoff rankings, 54 rankings all time, nine years of the playoff, where they do like six a year. They do six rankings a year. Six times nine is 54. Nebraska's been in there eight times, four times in 2014, four times in 2016, that they were in the top 25 of the playoff rankings. But it's been a while, Zach. Matt Rule is here. Can Nebraska, what is the ultimate ceiling, maybe, Zach, of Nebraska football 
with Matt Rule? Not in 2023, not in 2024, but down the line, can you see a world where Nebraska in a 12-team playoff world is in that mix or at the edge of that mix or in that discussion? Is that still out there if Matt Rule maximizes what he can do with the Cornhuskers? I do think so because of the because of the changes in the twelve team playoff. Um, there are complications to it, right? Um, this is the last year in the Big Ten of of divisions, so they're doing away with that. So you don't have the added advantage of being in a, in a Big Ten West, where perennially or traditionally you have to go nine and three tops, eight and four, seven and five might get it done to get into that um, that Big Ten championship game. But um, I mean. I th- I see the ceiling, uh, the consistent ceiling, I guess, of this program. I think is a, is a nine to ten win football team um, that can compete for uh, at least that being in that top third of the of the new Big Ten with Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, and then USC and UCLA coming in. But and, and I think if you get to nine, ten wins in the Big Ten, you're going to be in the discussion for in a twelve team playoff race. That's just sort of the nature of the expand the playoff expansion. Um I I it, it's I think it's gonna take a little while to get there. I mean, this year rule Matt Rule traditionally he has the he has the the history of turning programs around. He turned Temple around from two and ten team to uh a, a ten win back to back ten win seasons and first conference championship since the since the sixties. And he did the same thing at Baylor. He turned them from one and eleven into an eleven win team, Sugar Bowl appearance after taking over a disaster of a tenure that was that was left for him. But this, so he has that proven rec- track record in two places that don't have as many advantages or resources as Nebraska. And he also did in a time where it was a completely different sport with college football. I mean, NIL yeah. and the transfer portal, especially. So that's why. I mean, you anticipate that it's going to take at least three years to potentially get to that that nine, ten win um, ceiling that I think they have. But with uh, the, with the transfer portal the way it is, and um, an IL set up the way it is, I think you could see it turn around a little bit faster if things go right. And I think Rule sees that too. Um, in his first year at Temple and Baylor, he um, the the team struggled. I think uh, I think I can't remember the numbers offhand, but they did. They finished well below five hundred both years. Um, and then the second year was the sort of the the next step where they went six and six or um, and competed for uh, for bowl games seven and six and six and six. I believe were the final records. But this year, he you can tell you you kind of got the sense that he doesn't think it it's going to be that type of transition year where they go three and nine, four and eight. And then the outright, he flat out said it on a podcast with, uh, I believe it was Max Olson at the athletic. Um, he was talking about how he sees, he sees this first year, this first roster with Nebraska being on the same level or in the same place as his second year at Baylor and temple. So it, that's, that's good for a, a bit of a quicker start out of the gate, but this is still a slow rebuild. I mean, there are so many, fundamental issues in this program that need to be addressed. And that's what this offseason has been about is is building blocks and fundamentals and getting the right the right personnel in there, the right staff, the right players. So um 
still a slow build, but that, I mean, I mean that that uh, in the mix for a college football playoff appearance. I mean, I think in by year three of the rural tenure, we should be able to see that again if everything goes right and a lot of things do have to go right. So, history of Nebraska football. Bo Pelini again. The Bo Pelini uh, tenure is remarkable. It's nine and four or ten and four every year. So, at some point, people are like, I don't know. Four losses every year at Nebraska, is that good enough? Plus, Bo Pelini is kind of grumpy. So they fire Bo Pelini, and then the last eight years with Mike Riley and Scott Frost, they had one year when they were 9-4, and four, and the other seven years they had a losing record. So it falls off a cliff. So here comes Matt Rule, who did not work out in the NFL, but has a history of success, Zach, as you noted, in college football. Vibes. We'll get the specifics in a second. Vibes from the fan base. There you are. At the rival site at Nebraska, you're hearing from fans, you're interacting with fans. This is a ravenous college football fan base. How are they feeling about Matt Rule? And it's just weird, Scott, because Scott Zach, because Scott Frost was the perfect ultimate guy. He was Jim Harbaugh. He was coming home. I'm the guy coming back to save my school. It was the perfect hire, and it bombed. It bombed. It bombed. So how how have people what have the fans been like this spring embracing their first look at the Matt Rule version of Nebraska? Yeah, well, first off, it was interesting being on on this side of things of I mean, it was a 77 day national coaching search. It was an absolute marathon of a coaching search where every day in the message board and Twitter streets, it was just trench warfare is every day a new <laughs> a new candidate's named as the number one guy or. This guy is the lead. They're 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 almost at a deal with this guy. Deion Sanders was the number one candidate, and less than an hour later, that was debunked by Deion himself. So, uh, the rule was one of the many guys that was listed. And um, as a side, I mean, actually, I probably get into that in a second. But the, I think the fan base reaction was very mixed. I mean, it was mixed on everybody. Everybody was named a candidate. You would have fifty percent of the fans saying, "Oh, this would be a good hire," like, and here's why. And then the other saying this would be a disaster and Urban Meyer seemed to be the only one that people could that people could kind of rally behind uh, as close to a consensus as possible, even though Urban Meyer was never going to happen here. But anyway, I digress. Um, Rule, I think there was there was a knock on him that he didn't like recruiting or that he because he didn't work out in the NFL, that was for some reason going to be a hindrance to him working out in college. And um, there are all these different things of oh he doesn't he can't win the big games i mean at baylor and uh, and there were knocks on him and then he was hired <laughs> and then everything quickly changed because um i mean for one trev alberts nebraska athletic director when he when he conducted the search i mean the day scott frost was fired and albert held a press conference he laid out his vision for what he wants in his head coach um what he wants for the long-term vision of the program everything from fundamentals to um, being a, a grinder and worker who quote unquote doesn't have a lot of hobbies is someone he was looking for. And that's what this Nebraska head coaching job entails. You have to work your absolute ass off if you want this program to have any type of success. And um, he talked about having leadership qualities and getting people to move in the same direction. And there are a bunch of other things that he listed off. And then it's like retroactively looking back at, what he said during that press conference and in the weeks, months that followed, it's like, I guess we should have known rule was the number one candidate based on how everything's played out here over the last 
few months because, um, I mean, the fan base has overwhelmingly, in all caps, like bought into rule and fallen in love with the guy because he's not he's not just saying the right things; he's doing the right things. And when he does say the right things, you're kind of you're not looking at how he says it because I mean, he's the son of a preacher. He can be he can be a good salesman and good orator because he is. But it's like it's not how he says the things he's saying; it's what he's saying. I mean, he the two questionable moves I think his two most questionable moves of uh, the December January period were keeping the offensive line coach here, who after Nebraska's offensive line was the worst or second worst in the Big Ten last year, and then his explanations for why it's like okay, actually that makes sense. Then he hired a 24-year-old wide receivers coach who's never held a position coach before. And then he explains that away. And it's like, okay, I get it. Like, whether you believe in it or not is up to you. But at least the explanation, I can completely understand why he's making the moves that he, that he does. He's a CEO and very, very calculated um, program leader. And on top of all that, on top of doing the right things, going into high schools, like they hit as many Nebraska high schools as they possibly could, even if there's no chance that those play, that school is ever going to produce anything more than a preferred walk-on spot, which is something that the previous staff mm. um, did not do. And they've, they've mended relationships between Nebraska and the, the high schools in this state, and they've built those relationships. And... I think Rule wound up being perfect for just the state of Nebraska, the culture. He's going out everywhere. I mean, the the guy I don't think sleeps because he's going. He went to WWE SmackDown at Pinnacle Bank in Lincoln. Like he was on on the TV broadcast, like um, out there just with a with a handful of his players for, sitting front row cheering on, going uh, going wild at the at the professional wrestling event, and he's he's making relationships with the Omaha hockey team like and you might like people might laugh at that who don't understand the culture here but like having having those type of interpersonal relationships with the fan base here and the coaches the high school coaches in Nebraska uh, those are those are so important in just building um building a culture building an organization here that that he's done I mean he's like I, like I keep rambling, but he's done. He's made all the right moves, and now it's just okay. Yeah. Is this all going to pay off in the long run? All right, I'm going to jump ahead. I'm sorry, I, I, I can't help myself. I was going to hold it till the end or whatever. Let's talk about Dylan Rayola. So uh, <laughs> the uh, they kept Who's his that? uncle. What? So Dylan Rayola, number one quarterback recruit uh, in the next high school class. Um, his uncle is the offensive line coach that Matt Rule kept and Dylan Rayola one time committed to Ohio State now seems to be Nebraska USC Nebraska uh, Georgia Nebraska USC Georgia in the running so there's two parts to this question Zach is there any possibility as we talk about could Nebraska down the road be in the mix for a 12 team playoff it's like well I don't know you get the number one quarterback recruit in the country that certainly would help but even if they don't get him and it's an uphill battle it's like oh who are you trying to get? Uh, the number one quarterback recruit in the country. Who are you going against? Well, he was committed to Ohio State, which maybe has the best offense. Then he decommits from them. Now he's maybe going to go to USC, which also maybe has the best offense. Or if not, he's going to go to the two-time defending national champ. But you got his uncle and his dad played there. I, we get it, the family connections, but you got to go where you got to go. Can this help Nebraska even if they don't get him? Being in the mix, like what does Nebraska need to show in this process, Zach, that 
hey, we are now becoming a place where a guy that good can think about us, right? Is there something to be gained beyond do you get the kid or not? Can they can they lose out on the player in a good way? And do they actually have a chance to get the player? I'm so glad you br- you bring this up because this is something I've kind of been um, championing for for a couple of years now is the fact that the high school football recruiting, college football recruiting, that community of those top level players, especially, but over, I mean, recruits in general, but especially the the top level blue chip players. It's such an interconnected network of players. I mean, they have group chats for the Michigan targets, the Ohio State targets, the the Nebraska targets, and yada yada. It's just such a, um, it's such a uh, uh, a word of mouth community. If you um, if you bring in a player and you recruit him the right way and you show him from inside out what your program is like on recruiting visits and just from a relationship building process, going to visit their high schools. I mean, I said this at South Carolina um, when I covered when I covered South Carolina uh, recruiting, and um, I mean Jaden Davis. He was the he was then the number one quarterback in the country, and um, there was no way he was ever going to South Carolina. But he went on visits there. He built relationships with that coaching staff, and um, he would tell he, he would tell. This is just one example of one player, one recruit, and he would tell. Um, he would tell other guys in his class, like, yeah, actually, South Carolina is doing a pretty good job. Like, they blah, blah, blah. So that type of stuff does kind of trickle down to where maybe you don't wind up getting the five-star players, but those four-star players or the high-end three-stars, like, they start taking you more seriously. And Dylan Rayola has a Rolodex longer than any other recruit in the country, number one overall player, number one quarterback. And, um, I mean, we already saw it play out when he visited in March. He visited for uh, the March 24, 26 weekend for Nebraska's first like padded physical practice. And um, I mean, they got, that was the biggest recruiting weekend in the last two decades, arguably at least the most, the biggest recruiting weekend in the last two decades in Nebraska history, just based on the talent level and the depth. I mean, they had over two dozen visitors, like five stars, high four stars on campus at important spots, quarterback, offensive line, receiver. And um, if if Dylan had not visited, I think he still would have had a big weekend, but I think he was able to get some of those guys on campus, just his presence there. Um, so I do think being in the mix does do them, does do them a, a, um, a solid with, with just that network of, of high school athletes and, um, I don't know. I think I, I don't feel good about Nebraska landing rail at this point, but what what Rule and his staff did just by targeting him and recruiting him as the number one quarterback target, not just the number one quarterback, the only quarterback target, they um they zeroed in on him and said, We're gonna give it a shot. Like they always had a plan in place. No matter how this goes, maybe we don't get him. We probably don't get him. But why the hell would we not go after a guy of this caliber, like generational quarterback talent with uh, with potential to be an all time all time great in the NFL, let alone, I mean, not even just talking about the college level. So and then you add in the family connections of being a Husker legacy. He's not just the son of a Nebraska football player. He's the son of a Nebraska All-American who won national championships here and has a jersey 
or his number up in the rafters inside Memorial Stadium. Um, so it was always going to be worth it to go after Dylan Rayola, even if you didn't think you would get him. And then you have a backup plan of, I mean, the transfer portal again helps out because if you don't, if you don't get your top guy at the high school level, you can take a, you can take a transfer, which they've already done. They took Casey Thompson from Texas last year, and then they took Jeff Sims from Georgia Tech. So uh, it's dangerous to to live in that transfer portal world too much, especially at quarterback, because um, you want to have your homegrown talent and develop those guys in your system from from 18 years old on. But there's still that backup plan if you don't get them. I think I'm remembering this correctly. I remember talking with John Bosa, the father of Nick and Joey Bosa at Ohio State, and the mother of, of Nick and Joey Bosa went to Ohio State, and their uncle went to Ohio State. But John Bosa, who was an NFL player and a first-round pick, went to Boston College. And I think I remember John Bosa saying, like, Boston College like didn't try to recruit my kids. I don't know why they didn't try. So it's one of those things. You can't take yourself – you can't assume you're out of the running and be like, oh, my God, well, the guy's, the guy's kids are too good. What are you doing? You have it in. You have to try, and you have to try hard. And you have to be a place where the kid says, you did everything right. I." I just am not going to pick you, but you have to put your best foot forward and be a real option. So if Nebraska can do that and is doing that and the way you are describing it, Zach, there is victory in that, not just moral victory, but real momentum victory. Like you can lose well in recruiting. And I think, Zach, you've explained that very well. But let's talk about these quarterbacks that you just mentioned because we were curious about Nebraska this year, when you have a situation, what was the quarterback competition like this spring? And we now know that Casey Thompson, who started 10 of 12 games last year, former Texas transfer, two games he didn't start, he was hurt. He's leaving. He's transferring out. Jeff Sims, the transfer from Georgia Tech, seems like he's going to be the starting quarterback. Did Jeff Sims just beat Casey Thompson out? Was it an ongoing battle that and Casey Thompson still could have been the starter in the fall, but he decided to leave? We know he's gone. But, like, what's the read on it? Is it bad for Nebraska? Is it good of, like, hey, we had a battle and the guy won and the other guy left and we're trying to elevate that position? This was an interesting Sims-Thompson battle. What do you think of how it shook out? Well, there's a curveball because it was a, it was a battle that was not a true battle because Casey Thompson didn't participate in spring ball because he was, uh, he was recovering from off-season shoulder surgery. And he, he was held out. He might have been able to, to go and be limited, but they held him out. So he didn't practice. And going into the spring, it was my number one question of the entire, of entire spring ball uh, on a list of a billion questions was, can Jeff Sims uh, give a foot, uh, can Jeff Sims get a foothold and how strong of a foothold can he get in that race to be the starting quarterback? Because I thought he could, I thought he could. Uh, get get a strong foothold, like get get working on it and build momentum into the off season. But um, going into spring and even midway through spring, I thought he he's not going to win the starting quarterback job in spring. Like this is going to be a fall camp position battle. That's when the true quarterback race kind of kicks off. And the first week, second week of spring ball, I still still believed that because of things I was hearing um, out of out of practice with. Jeff Sims, like maybe being a little more, a little erratic with his accuracy, um, not being as consistent. And then 
as spring practice rolled on, more I heard was he's that Sims has improved with those with those areas of the game that he's been incredibly impressive. I mean, physically he he has a physically he looks like an NFL uh, NFL caliber first round second round draft pick six four two twenty. I mean, he's just built uh, like like a five star athlete almost. But it's the throwing and the decision making that needed needed work because he started three years at Georgia Tech through 30 touchdowns and 23 interceptions and we've had uh, seven lost fumbles maybe that that number's uh, not not quite accurate but I know he had he did have issues with ball security and then 57.5 percent completion percentage so it's like those things don't go away but completely new staff new new offensive system new teachers new coaches and I think they were throwing so many things at him early on. You're installing a new offensive system from Mark, Marcus Satterfield, which is has been notoriously more complex than than most offensive coordinator systems um, or most offenses in uh, in um, in college football. You saw that with Spencer Rattler struggling going from Oklahoma to South Carolina, where Satterfield was the the OC. But um, as spring practice rolled along, it became more and more obvious that that Sims was. Sims was the more talented, uh, more talented quarterback, um, or the more talented physical athlete. It was mm-hmm. could he and could he own in on that accuracy? Could he show that he can make better decisions, process information quickly, make the reads faster? And um, and evidently that that bore out. And Casey Thompson, he's awesome football mind, very cerebral. Um, like works his absolute tail off. Like the work ethic was never in question. The football mind, football IQ was never in question. It was just physically. You have Jeff Sims at six four two twenty, Casey Thompson at six foot, around um, two hundred, a little over. I think it's two hundred five is what he's listed at. Um, make sure I get that right. Six five or uh, six foot one ninety five versus six four two twenty. So yeah, you have two completely different physical, uh, physical physicalities there, and um, the way Satterfield and Rule want to run this offense, they want a, a quarterback who they can use in the run game. They're not going to use him like Adrian Martinez, and they're not going to be running him fifteen, twenty times a game. But they want to be able to use that on um, in their offense, and um, Casey just didn't fit didn't fit that as well, and. Um, Going into the summer, I mean, they had their they had their exit meetings last week, and it was it was made clear where where both guys stood. And Casey Thompson decided to enter the transfer portal, and um, instead of having a, a quarterback battle or at least a perceived quarterback battle in fall camp, now Jeff Sims is the unquestioned QB one going into summer and fall. And I mean, there's a lot of belief coming out of that locker room. You you hear things, and then you also like prep privately and publicly that there's belief there with with Sims. I mean, Rule belief Rule brought him essentially brought him in to the program. Um and he believes he said I think he's an NFL talent. I've been told by a bunch of different coaches he's an NFL ta- uh NFL caliber player if he develops right. So there's some excitement there. All right. If you guys want to know more about Nebraska football you can go type into your Google machine inside Nebraska.com. And then the work of Zach and his colleagues at the rival site covering the Cornhuskers will come up. Um, Nebraska.rivals.com is the official URL. So type that in and uh, you don't even have to subscribe. Just hit the free information. 
I just typed in InsideNebraska.com and it redirected me there too, right? You got the two things. Oh, we got that working now. I didn't even know that. I've been so trained to do Nebraska.Rivals.com and I have it bookmarked, so I didn't know we got that uh, brushing up. All right, InsideNebraska.com. Doug's right. Look at you. It's a redirect. It it redirected it magically. Look at you. Look at you. I'm giving you a... You're working so hard, you don't even know what you can type into the Google machine about your site. InsideNebraska.com will work. So, uh, So, but, and maybe, you know... Wouldn't it be great to talk Nebraska football in a playoff context again? It would be a wonderful thing. Haven't been in a, in a playoff poll since 2016. Maybe not. Maybe not in 2023, but maybe down the road. With or without Dylan Rayola, maybe we'll see Nebraska bat it, back in that context. In the meantime, make sure you're following Zach and his team for all of the Cornhuskers coverage you could possibly want. Zach, thanks so much for joining us here on the College Football Survivor Show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Doug. Appreciate you letting me ramble for so long. So thanks, man. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Joined now on the College Football Survivor Show by John Steppy of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. And your podcast name is a pun. I can never remember the pun. What's the pun? Hawk off the press. Hawk off. Oh, I was listening to it. I was like, lock down this pun. Lock down this pun. Hawk off the press. It's too good. John Steppy, we're here to talk about the Iowa Hawkeyes, how they look this spring, what we can expect for the future. So first of all, like not a full traditional spring game for the Hawkeyes. Is that correct? More of a picnic atmosphere, a gathering of friends kind of deal. (laughs) Yes. Very much a practice more than a game. Like you really cannot call it a spring game. They basically did their usual practice with some 11 on 11 kind of at the end. So, and you didn't see any of Cade McNamara in 11 on 11. They had him do some seven on seven. So you kind of had to put a little bit of an asterisk on everything you saw offensively. Injuries too were a big problem. So a couple different asterisks you throw on there. But yeah, so it was a spring very much practice. Okay. So what are, what, what are the I feel like this is a loaded question. What are the, everything about Iowa football is loaded right now? What <laughs> are what are the vibes around Iowa football right now? Like, you know, fans are out at the practice and they're talking about, you know, Cade McDermott and we'll get into him specifically in a second as a transfer from Michigan and here we go. Like, are people feeling good about the Hawkeyes? Are they a little uh, quizzical? Like, what's the deal? Well, there's a lot of frustration about Brian Ferentz, as you could imagine. I thought, how long until we get to BF? Okay, minute <laughs> 50. I get it. Yeah. So that's been a big frustration where, like, I had some comment, I think it was about, oh, it was about a Kurt quote about the quarterback two competition, nobody having their job locked down. And, of course, somebody replies, including Brian. Okay, they've like, done it to themselves. But but that frustration, the fans, it, it, the carryover is there. It's still there. It's still yes. there, the frustration. Yes, it's, it's absolutely public. there. Brian Ferentz did not do himself any favors in his spring press conference. I asked him what his message was to frustrated fans after the last two years, and he said, I don't have a message to them. <laughs> okay. I asked him what he's going to do differently to avoid having the same problem this year that they had the last two years. And he said, we're going to do the same things. We're going to do it better, John. 
<laughs> okay. This is make it makes it very difficult to talk about them. Not sarcastic. <laughs> it makes it very difficult. They've done it to themselves. <laughs> let's let's talk about the defense though, first of all. Looking at the football outsiders metrics from last year, Iowa, number one defense in the country. Number one eleven offense. We'll get to that. We're gonna start with the defense. Iowa loses linebacker Jack Campbell, Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year to the first round of the NFL draft. They lose Lucas Van Ness off the edge to the first round of the NFL draft. Lose some other good players. Phil Parker is a dude as a defensive coordinator. How good should this Iowa defense be this season? What did you see from the Iowa defense this spring? Are there is there a next round of guys ready to step up and fill in for some of these absolutely stud, outstanding defenders that the Hawkeyes are losing? I'll start with the defensive line. That could be a position that despite losing Lucas Van Ness, number 13 overall pick, I don't think is going to skip a beat this year. They really have a lot of depth. You have a guy like Deontay Craig, who did not get a ton of recognition. He had six and a half sacks, 10 tackles for loss, no all Big Ten honors. He's somebody that was a sophomore last year, could make a big jump this coming year. You've got guys like Aaron Graves, who was a spectacular high school athlete who probably would have gotten a lot more recruiting attention had he not committed to Iowa so early. He's a guy who can really rise up inside. You've got three out of four returners or three out of four starters returning with Noah Shannon taking his COVID year, Joe Evans taking his COVID year, Logan Lee has his senior year. So you have a lot of experience there. They can rotate a lot of guys in and out again this year. So that's me a position really of strength. Linebackers me a little more of a question. You can't just lose Jack Campbell and not really skip a beat. When you just yeah. look at how dominant of a player he was. He was Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year. The Cleveland.com poll that you guys put together predicted that. So... As expected, was tremendous last year. They get Nick Jackson coming in from the transfer portal from Virginia. That's about as good as you can get in terms of trying to replace Jack Campbell, but there's only one Jack Campbell. You have some older guys who just haven't had opportunities behind Campbell, Benson, Justin Jacobs before, but at the end of the day, that is going to be a position where you see some new faces for sure. Last year, they went in with three linebackers on the Butkus Award preseason watch list when they essentially run a 4-2-5. So just let that sink in about how good that linebacking group was last year. They won't quite be at that point this year. Defensive back, you feel pretty good about that first team. The depth, though, is going to be a big question mark. Cooper DeGene went out with an injury against Nebraska, and then Nebraska really exposed some younger defensive backs. One of the things that cost Iowa a trip to the Big Ten championship game last year when they just needed to beat Nebraska and they couldn't get it done. So they need to have a few more guys step up there. But overall, you'd feel pretty good about the defense. Defense looked good in the spring practice, especially the defensive line, despite some guys like Noah Shannon has been out for this spring because of surgery. Same thing with Logan Lee. Joe Evans did some drills, but also had been out for most of the spring. And yet you see a lot of these backups step up in big ways. So you'd say probably in terms of 
confidence by position group, defensive line, you'd put number one, then probably number two would be the secondary. And linebacker is probably the biggest question mark. It helps that Jay Higgins had some opportunities last year, but it's going to be a much different look there. But all said, should be a pretty good defense. This should be another year where Iowa is relying on its defense more than its offense. And it's some, one of the unfortunate things with the, the, what happened with the way people thought about Iowa football last year is that it's that the defense is 100% absolutely legit. And it is truly one of the 10 best defenses in college football. It's not ranked that high only because nobody in the Big Ten West can play offense. They are real dudes, and the NFL draft is showing that. So please keep that in mind, the job that people, as people listen to this around the country, the job that Phil Parker and those defensive players do year in and year out at Iowa is top shelf, man. So let's talk about the offense. One of the things, two things last year, right? Main storylines is the quarterback play is terrible and the offensive line issues. A lot of people are saying, hey, man, it's just it's injuries and lack of depth on the offensive line. And if they get the offensive line straightened out, Kirk Ferentz is an offensive line guy. This is where they've been good. This is what Iowa does. And they've been a mess on the offensive line. If they get the offensive line straightened out, a lot of other things are going to fall into the play, into place. Did the offensive line look straightened out this spring? What kind of leap might it make from a year ago? Yeah, we get a small sample size where we get that one open practice at the end of spring, and then they had a 30-minute portion of practice. I believe it's 30 minutes earlier on. Of course, they picked that 30-minute section when pretty much all of Iowa media was in Dallas for the women's Final Four. So... So a very small sample size, but the offensive line, I thought, held their own. They have some injuries there, so I wasn't sure what to expect from them because they have guys like Connor Colby, Mason Richmond, who were out. So they were a little thin up there, but I thought they held their own, where it isn't necessarily dominant, but you probably weren't expecting them to be dominant against that Iowa defensive line, but they weren't the reason for things going awry. And the running backs had some space at times to make big plays. So I'd say a step in the right direction. Is that enough of a step for the fall? We have to wait and see. It'll be interesting. It's really a position where they need that developmental time. And having these injuries really rack up in the spring was not helpful for that. So we'll see what happens with that. Dejan Parker is a guy who transferred from a D2 school, was going to go to Virginia, flipped his commitment to Iowa. He really could have benefited from these 15 spring practices. He gets hurt in like first or second practice of spring. So you have guys like that. You have Rusty Feth coming in from Miami of Ohio, but still finishing up his academic program with Miami. Doesn't get the spring developmental time. I really see the offensive line as the X factor. If I had to put a grade on where they are in terms of progression, I'd say it's incomplete. Haven't seen enough evidence one way or another just because so many guys have been out and they were going up against defensive line. They had some guys out too. But it'll be, there's a reason for optimism, but I'll believe that improvement when I see it. 
Okay, so the quarterback play a year ago, Alex Padilla and Spencer Petras had seven touchdown passes and seven interceptions. The overall passer rating for Iowa football, according to CFB stats, was 121 in the country. There were only uh, three Power Five teams, Indiana, Colorado, and Rutgers, that were worse. They were terrible throwing the ball, and they bring in a playoff quarterback. Cade McMahon, who two years ago was the quarterback when Michigan made the playoff, is here. Eric All, his tight end, coming from Michigan as well. Maybe he'll help replace Sam Laporta, who is a big loss at tight end, one of the best tight ends in the country last year. The level of quarterback play a year ago, and I mean, Cade McNamara doesn't have to be playoff caliber to be exponentially better than what Iowa had at quarterback last year. You said you didn't really get to see much of Cade McNamara and the uh, 11 on 11 stuff in the practice, but how much of a sea change could this be for Iowa at quarterback? I think, well, you look at it, it can only go one way. It can only go up compared to last year. It helps a lot. The thing that I have been able to see from Cade has been his leadership. I keep on hearing it from offensive players where his leadership has made a big difference and he has a lot of confidence in this offense. And I think if you were to get really honest opinions from the offensive players last year, they probably lost a little bit of confidence in themselves when the results were as bad as they were. So he's been doing a lot of that. And then in terms of on the field, it's probably not realistic to expect him to have Michigan production at Iowa if Iowa doesn't have the tools that Michigan had. When you look at wide receiver talent, it's not there. Tight end talent is there. Luke Cliche, Eric Hall, as you mentioned, is a really good duo. They might just be in 13 personnel all the time because Addison Ostranga might be better than a lot of their wide receiver options in terms of a third tight end. So that's going to be the challenge for Cade. Is going to be who is he going to throw to? Because wide receiver is really thin. It's a priority for Iowa in the portal. They only have so many spots, though, that they can work with there. So that's going to be the big question mark for Cade McNamara. An improvement is likely. It's just a matter of how much of an improvement. And I think it really goes down to what tools does he have at his disposal? Because they only had one healthy scholarship wide receiver in that spring practice. And that's a combination of injuries, other attrition, and just not a lot of depth where they've lost a lot of guys to the portal. The wide receiver coach, Kelvin Copeland's even been open about the challenges of recruiting wide receivers to Iowa tight end you. So that's going to be the big challenge for Cade McNamara. I think a lot of fans have this picture in their imagination that, okay, they're getting like a CJ Stroud caliber quarterback and First few weeks might be a little bit of a reality check there where Cade isn't quite that level of quarterback. But you'd look at it and you'd say, okay, would you rather have him or would you rather have Spencer Petras? Anybody's going to take Cade McNamara there. You said tight end you. I have a a different name for Iowa. How about BFU for Brian Ferentz you or for a big FU? (laughs) Iowa's offense is a big FU to Iowa fans. So you can use that if you want. (laughs) BFU. So how much does this Brian Ferrett situation hang over this season? And for people who don't know what happened, Gary Barta, the athletic director, they said a thing. If Iowa does an average 25 points per game, 
basically Brian Ferentz is going to get fired. And it is the strangest coaching thing that I have seen in my two decades covering college football. Are they going to play their first string quarterback in the fourth quarter of blowouts to get some cheap touchdowns? Like it is going to hang over the season. And I, and I personally am going to make fun of it every week. And I'm not going to be the only one. How much do you think it will hang over the season and that fans are going to think about it, players are going to get asked about it, and there's going to be two separate scoreboards happening for Iowa football. One is, did you win the game? And two is, where is Brian Ferentz on his 25 points per game average? John, what's this going to be like? I've already been getting questions like, are we going to have a Brian Ferentz points tracker throughout the season? Because it is so unusual. The drive to 325 is one of the nicknames for it, I've heard. (laughs) Because you need 325 points, including the bowl game, because there has to be a bowl game because of the seven-win designated performance objective as well. So he has to get to 325 points. And the question came up in Brian Ferentz's press conference, and he said that, okay, while the hypothetical was given, that isn't even that hypothetical of, okay, you're up 24-10 against Wisconsin. Do you just run the clock off or do you go for a field goal? And Brian Ferentz said that he would be at peace with that if they're winning 24-10 against Wisconsin. And if this is his last year as offensive coordinator at Iowa, he's at peace with that. Of course, it's a lot easier to be at peace with that in April when this seems a lot more hypothetical than if going into the Nebraska game or going into the bowl game, he knows, okay, I need to score 30 points. Otherwise, my coaching career is going to take a hit here. It might be over. We'll see. Maybe Bill Belichick will hire him again. But it will certainly be hanging over. I'm sure there'll be a question for players. Players are probably going to deflect about it. But it's still, it's something that, especially if it's in to be close toward the end, of course, it's going to be one of the things that could make this one of the most interesting and unusual Iowa football seasons in a while. So there's a bigger picture question I want to end with here, John. So I'll give you the short short answer on this one. If they don't get there and Brian Ferentz is gone, is Kirk Ferentz also going to leave? Or could there be a world where Brian Ferentz is out and Kirk Ferentz stays for 2024? That's a great question. That's something that I've been pondering myself. I think that it would be a hard thing for Kirk to have to let go of Brian without it being the end of Kirk. But it's possible. I'm not going to rule anything out. The question is, how much longer does Kirk want to do this? Clearly, he doesn't need the money at this point. And is he going to want to go through having to fire his son? And well, it's really Gary Barta who'd be doing it because Kirk was not involved with these designated performance objectives. But I think it's a very fair question. Kirk seems to be enjoying coaching right now. He has his concerns about NIL and the transfer portal. He has expressed those several times, whether that's Big Ten Media Days, they had him speaking to the basically the Iowa Athletics Board. They call it the Presidential Committee on Athletics. And he talked really extensively about that. He talked about it a little bit in his 
spring press conference. So college football is changing. Maybe the combination of that and if Brian Ferentz can't stick around, that will certainly be something to watch. So the last question here. In the 12-year history of the Big Ten Championship game, Iowa's been there twice. It's pretty good. They were there two years ago. In the last four years, Iowa has won the West once, and then the other three years, they were within one game of winning the West. They've been right there. For as bad as the offense has been, the team has been competitive. You can't deny that. It's it, it, But it makes you, it's one of those two things. Is it? Is it, hey, they've been good, they've been competitive, shut up about the offense? Or is it, hey, imagine if you had a functional offense, what that might look like? Because the defense is so good, because other parts of this program are really good. And Kirk Ferentz absolutely deserves credit for that. Phil Parker first, but Kirk Ferentz is his program, and they've been right there. It's changing. 2024, we don't have the official thing, but it's not going to be East and West. My Everyone is assuming there's going to be no divisions, and you're going to be in a world where – and this is the last vestige of – a weaker division in a conference because in 2023, Pac-12 is two best teams. Big 12 is two best teams. ACC is two best teams for its conference championship game. And the SEC, they have divisions, but there's Georgia in one division and Alabama and LSU in the other. So the Big 10 West is the last place where a mediocre team potentially can make a championship game. For Iowa, that they've succeeded in their bubble their Big Ten-created bubble, where it doesn't matter if you're not as good as Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State, because that's not what you're doing, and that's not the expectation. Getting to the Big Ten championship game is a great feat and a victory in and of itself, and it should be. You get to hang a, hang a banner. There's banners, right? Do they have Big Ten West banners? Oh, yes. They have the Music City Bowl banner, even from the year that the Music City Bowl was canceled. Although the banners are technically down because they're redoing the turf after spring, but the banners will be up for absolutely every bowl, every division championship. You name it, there's a ball or there's a banner in the football facility. The banners are great. They're, you earn your banner. Congratulations on your banners. In 2024, when to get to the Big Ten championship game, you've got to be better than two of the three of Ohio State, Michigan, and USC. And then throw Penn State in there and throw in Michigan State when Michigan State peaks and then throw in, you know, it's not that there's no good teams in the West, but the West is going to be dead. How does Iowa survive? Does Iowa change expectations? What do you think Iowa in a non-divisional Big Ten would look like? And to me, Kirk Ferentz saying, I'm out. Winning the West is no longer a thing. I'm not spending my life banging my head against Ryan Day, Jim Harbaugh, and Lincoln Riley. And letting somebody else come into Iowa, the world is a changing. And for Iowa to change with it in 2024, with a coach who understands modern offense, makes a whole lot of sense to me, John Steppy. What will it be like for Iowa in the new Big Ten in 2024? Will expectations have to change? Will fans have to think differently at all? Will it be worse for Iowa without that carrot of a Big Ten West to win? Oh, I think it absolutely is going to be worse. You look at 2023 and you have three of your six Big Ten West opponents going through head coaching changes. And all three coaches, I think, have a lot of upside. But you look at it for 2023, that's a pretty good path for Iowa to get to Indianapolis. Their crossover games are against Michigan State, Rutgers, and Penn State. Penn State is on the road. That one will be tough. But you look at it. They benefit from a pretty favorable schedule this year. 
all of a sudden, when you no longer have those division protections and you're playing Nebraska, well, Nebraska is not a good example because that could be a protected rivalry. But let's say Northwestern, for example. They're going to be playing Northwestern as much as they're playing Michigan or Northwestern as much as they're playing Ohio State or Northwestern as much as they're playing USC. You look at that, that's going to be a much harder reality for Iowa. And I think fans will have to adjust their expectations because Iowa has not shown the ability in recent years to really be in the mix with the Michigans, with the Ohio States. When you look at what happened last year when they played Michigan and Ohio State, that game where it was like the best defensive game for a team giving up more than 50 points at the horseshoe last year, but giving up 50 points to Ohio State, they haven't been able to be in that top tier. And I think it will be a lot harder when you don't have the benefit of what's been, frankly, a really bad division the last few years in terms of at least the top, where some of the worst teams are probably more competitive in the West than in the East. But you look at that top of the division, Wisconsin's been down, Nebraska, everyone thinks is going to be the reincarnation every year, and then we've yet to see it. So it will absolutely be harder. And if you're Iowa, the path to Indianapolis is going to be a lot harder. The path to New Year's Six Bowls, I think, is be a lot harder because your schedule, just looking at 2023 to 2024, whenever that 2024 schedule comes out, that's to be like night and day difference right there. Why are we talking about Iowa on a playoff show? It's because if you're a fan of the playoff race, you should also be a fan of the Brian Ferentz watch this year. It will be fascinating to watch. And we have to acknowledge that Iowa, in its own way, has been at the edge of the playoff discussion at times. They played a play-in game for the playoff in 2015 against Michigan State in the Big Ten Championship game. This is not a program that's been an afterthought. They've been there. It's just going to get exceedingly more difficult for Iowa to be there. Last answer, when it's over. And my guess is, if I had to guess, my guess is Kirk Ferentz is not Iowa's head coach in 2024. You don't have to guess on that. But when Kirk Ferentz is gone, do you have a name for the next Iowa coach? And is it LeVar Woods, the special teams coach? A lot of fans would like LeVar Woods. I think at some point in LeVar Woods' career, he will be the Iowa head coach. The question is just going to be, does Gary Barta or whoever is athletic director at that point, I will include that caveat because Gary Barta's contract does end in 2024. He has not exactly been winning over public opinion in the state. You've had politicians from both sides of the aisle basically calling for Barta's head. Isn't it nice when our politicians can agree on something? What a wonderful <laughs> thing for Iowa sports to bring people together like this. Yes, one of the few bipartisan things, you know, in Iowa is not liking Gary Barta, apparently. <laughs> so whoever the athletic director is, when that time comes, Barta's contract expires June 30th, 2024, but he has not signaled any interest in retiring so far. So does that person want someone with prior head coaching experience? And that's going to be the determining factor with whether LeVar Woods gets it right away or not. If this was a conversation five years ago, I'd say Mark Stoops would be pretty much at the top of that list. Stoops has a really strong connection to Iowa, having played there 
when the Citrus Bowl matchup was announced in 2022 for the game in 2023, Stoops spoke really at length about his love for Iowa. And, okay, if that position were to come open, that would be a tempting thing for Mark Stoops. But right now, you know, he's got that pretty long-term deal in Kentucky. He's 55 years old, so maybe age-wise, if this is a conversation in 2024, okay, maybe he can give you a good chunk of time there. So he'd be an interesting name. I think Brett Bielema would be interested. He's an Iowa grad. He has a Tiger Hawk tattoo even. So for those that don't know, Tiger Hawk is the Iowa logo. So you have a lot of coaches who I think would be interested in that job, a lot of coaches with Iowa connections. But LeVar Woods certainly would be a strong candidate. He has all the traits you're looking for in a head coach. His special teams units have been outstanding. The attention to detail, where I hear from people about how good Iowa is in holding and how they're one of the best teams in the country in holding. And just that attention to detail has really shown with special teams. So LeVar should certainly be a strong candidate. It's really good to depend on... Okay, does Mark Stoops leave Kentucky? Does the athletic director want somebody with head coaching experience? I'm not saying it's going to go south this year for Iowa. I'm just saying it could go south for Iowa football this year. And if it does go south, I'd wipe them out. No Brian, no Kirk, no Gary. Tie them together. They're all in or they're all out. So you start fresh in 2024. Here comes USC and UCLA. Here comes no divisions. Here comes the 12-team playoff. And there go those guys. And here comes a new AD hiring a new head coach with a new offensive game plan. And it is a rebirth of Iowa football. A rebirth, which maybe means you think of it a different way, right? So I like those names. I like those names. Smart Mark Stoops, Brett Bielema, like those names. I like LeVar Woods, too. So we'll see where that goes. That's a lot of Iowa talk for a playoff show. But... We're all going to be watching the drive for 325 here on the College Football Survivor Show. John Steppy, thanks as always for your time. What's the name again? Go hawk yourself. What's the podcast again? Hawk it up. Say it again. Hawk off the press. You were close. Hawk off. Go hawk yourself also would work if you're ever looking for a name change. <laughs> I'll consider that. I'll consider that. And also BFU is also there for you for the ticket. All right, John Steppy <laughs> from... The Cedar Rapids Gazette, go read his coverage of the Hawkeyes. Follow the drive for 325 this year. And that'll do it for this edition of the College Football Survivor Show. I want to thank all of our guests, Colton Bartholomew talking about Wisconsin, Zach Carpenter talking about Nebraska, and John Steppy talking about Iowa. Shahan will be back soon, but I think the other pod this week, we're going to have some Oregon talk, going to have some Notre Dame talk. I think that's the plan as we continue to sort of round up these last few national title contenders that we have not talked about in spring football. And I'm aware of the fact that I have been trumpeting Michigan and we have not done Michigan spring football roundup because Michigan got done so early. So I think we will, I'm almost guaranteeing that we'll double back and do something with Michigan here before we completely get out of the spring football window. Cause we need to talk about the Wolverines, but for now we appreciate you guys making us part of your college football fandom I'm Doug Maurice, and that was the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.